Okay, so welcome to uh, Free Observer yet again. Um, we've got yet another topical issue. It's the topical issue. So after two years of being uh, bombarded with COVID, um, we had the restrictions magically disappear, uh, all the mandates, and lo and behold, very soon after, we find ourselves in what everybody is proclaiming to be something approaching the Third World War. And in uh, in relation to that, we uh, we have uh, connected with uh, Thomas West, who's an American citizen, but living in Moscow. And Thomas uh, has been there since January. Thomas, you will tell us, you know, the, the, the quick background about how you ended up there, whether it's fortuitously or or destiny <laughs> or, or unfortunately, I don't know. Um, time will yeah. tell. Uh, but Thomas has agreed to talk to us about um, what it's like on the ground, how the ordinary Russians see it, and then we're going to go through some of the various um, reasons that there could be for this to happen, other than the singular one that we are always presented. So we, as every viewer that we've ever had will know, we always try and, and present an alternative viewpoint about what's going on. The mainstream media has given us one, but uh, the world is usually far more nuanced and uh, and colorful than, uh, than just that. And so with that, welcome to you, Thomas. Thank you. Where do you want me to start with uh, the unique circumstances leading to me being here right now? Yeah, why don't you tell your story, how you ended up there? Because that's interesting. So basically, I had done some work with um, members of the Russian media. They recruited me to help them with a the documentary, and I made some friends uh, on that project. And then out of nowhere, a year and a half later, one of them calls me up and says, hey, Thomas, they've lifted the travel bans uh, to Russia due to the COVID pandemic. Would you like to visit? And that was back in August. And I said, yeah, of course, I would love to. And so I go through the visa application. It takes a bunch of time. And I had some personal obligations, some professional ob obligations that prevented me from leaving a lot sooner. Because if I had left in like September, I would have been home. <laughs> months before this thing started, but I, instead I arrived here in January. You arrived in January <laughs> this year. And even then, nobody really expected this to happen. <laughs> it, out of nowhere. Um, it was as much a, a, of a shock to the Russians as it was to anybody else. You know, every taxi driver and random citizen I spoke to, I was like, do you think there's going to be a war? And uh, they all said, it, it can't happen. There's no way that'll happen. <laughs> Interesting. Overnight, here we are. And here we are. So, so what are they? What are they saying now? All these people who uh, never expected this. I, I don't think anybody. Well, some people did, but very few people expected a pandemic either. But what? Um, what are they saying now? Where, how? How are they positions? Well, I would say it's about fifty-fifty. People who oppose the war and people who support it. Um, People who oppose it are kind of um, mimicking the Western narrative where Putin's just this power-hungry imperialist. Uh, their media is lying to them. Um, and Putin is fundamentally this fascistic uh, oligarch in control of Russia that needs to be stopped. And then you have the pro-war people that are saying, thank God. Thank God this finally happened. Um, and that is for political reasons and uh and what, what, what are what are their arguments why they would say thank god it happens for the war 
Mm-hmm. So you basically have two ways of looking at it. You have the um, sort of moral transcendent reason, which is that uh, they see this as a war of liberation. That's what the news keeps pounding. Ukraine is in control of these corrupt oligarchs that have been raping the country since the, the USSR fell. The Ukrainian working class is dirt poor. They're in bed with Nazis and they're oppressing the, oppressing the ethnic Russians that live there to the point where it's illegal to speak Russian in the Ukraine. And they support this war because they see it's, it's a chance to bring Ukraine home to the motherland. Ukraine and Russia have been the same country for 900 years. Yeah. They were only considered even separate socialist republics under the um, USSR during, after the Bolshevik Revolution. And still, they, they were considered one country, the USSR. It was only 30 years ago when the USSR collapsed that Ukraine became independent from Russia. I don't think that you, that you cannot erase a thousand years of unity by drawing a line on the map and waiting 30 years. Like, so Russians see this as a chance to sort of reunify Ukraine uh, with where it belongs and uh, free them from the oppression they're suffering under Zelensky. Um, and there's a strong case to be made for that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, historically, um, I know many, uh, many Russians, particularly uh, what I would call the elite, has always uh, thought of Ukraine as the spiritual and, and ethnic uh, real uh, home of, of Russia. Um, yeah, for 900 years, Kiev was called the mother of Russian cities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and is, there a, is there a sense that that may also be the case in Ukraine? Or do people, from what, I mean, I know it's hard with when you're at wartime to get any, any kind of non-propagandized or emotional responses, but is there a sense of, other than the eastern regions, um, which have always had a strong affiliation ethnically and culturally with Russia. But is there a sense that, uh, let's say, normal Ukrainians are also somewhat divided or have a different opinion? And well, that would be impossible to say. Um, so for those who don't know, the current Ukrainian government was installed via a coup in a 2014. Yeah, backed by the U.S. Um, and since then, it used to be a relatively pro-Russian government. Now it's totally anti-Russian. And they're just, if you have any criticism, criticisms of Putin, uh, the Ukrainian government is just as bad. <laughs> Let no one convince you Zelensky is some champion of democracy. The government was installed. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so any pro-Russian um, voices, outside of Eastern Ukraine, within Ukraine, very likely be silent, suppressed, that they effectively have like terrorist militias on both sides frankly, that, that are suppressing uh, different voices in this uh, civil war that's been going on for eight years. So I think to, we will not have an answer to that until those regions are conquered by Russia and we'll see the supporters are when it's safe to speak. Wow. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe we could talk a little bit about the current uh, leadership in Ukraine, because you know people are touting that this is a democratic country with a free will. 
which is why it would be interesting to really truly try and find out what the Ukrainians themselves want, because there's no, nothing democratic at all about this or any of the previous administrations for that matter. I mean, uh, there's, there's several videos going around where people are being reminded that not only is the uh, candidate who ended up second in, in the presidential elections in jail, uh, the leader of the opposition party is in jail. Uh, three media stations, which were critical of uh, the current government, are closed down. And numerous journalists, um, and what I think you would call intellectuals, journalists, etc., are also in prisons. So this notion that we're fighting on behalf of a democratically elected and uh, uh, democracy representing yeah. regime is it's a little bit hard to swallow. Yeah. And you have to ask why. Why are we painting that narrative? Mm. And so why are we? Uh, so I basically I think um, the current Ukrainian regime is a, a NATO puppet state. Um, they play ball with NATO. Uh, they're hostile toward Russia. And I think NATO is fundamentally hostile toward Russia because Russia does not uh, cooperate with like, you know, you could call it the sort of globalist order they're trying to impose on the rest of the world. Uh, Putin is the competitor, the ideological competitor in uh, Europe. Zelensky's willing to go along with it, Putin's not. So they're backing Zelensky. They're trying to um, cripple Russia any way they can. And they are um, looking for excuses to do it. So right now, that's the Ukrainian war, and the West helped provoke this war. Um, Putin, uh, for the sake of national uh, na national security, he did not want weapons inside of Ukraine. He certainly did not want nuclear weapons inside of Ukraine, and he did not want Ukraine to become a NATO state. And all he asked was a written promise that Ukraine would remain neutral. And for the sake of Ukraine's democracy, um, they said no. Absolutely hard line. They said no. You know, they didn't just say no. They continued to supply Ukraine with weapons. Ukraine used those weapons to uh, break the ceasefire with the secessionists and restart the civil war. Um, so the West had a huge hand to play in a, you know, you know, a sort of promoting the aggression inside of Ukraine against against Russia, giving them the tools and the will to start poking the bear. Yeah, so I've, is it fair to say, so there is a degree of provocation, there has been attempts, I mean, I don't want to under any circumstances paint Putin, Putin like the big liberator and defender yeah. of democracy and rights, but it is true, like you said, isn't it, that he did reach out and try and reach an agreement that this would be a neutral state, neither Russian nor NATO. Uh, but since it is bordering and an important spiritual, geographic, strategic, historical uh, relationship to, to Russia, that it at least remain neutral with none kind of interference and intervention by either party. And I wanted to kind of touch on the more um, pragmatic reasons that uh, Putin need needs a neutral state on his mm -hmm. western. Um, I actually don't see many people talking about this at all. 
And um, <clears throat> so when you look at Russia's western border, it's very vulnerable, right? Uh, the western border along Ukraine is very wide and geographically it's all flatland. So it is extremely difficult to defend if it were invaded. Now, only 300 kilometers inland lies Volgograd, which sits near the mouth of the Volga River, which is the river that Russia uses to transport its oil from the Caspian Sea and distribute it through the rest of Russia. Um, if one were to take Volgograd, they would cripple Russia border to border. It would cut them off of their, uh, from their oil production. And that's exactly what Hitler tried to do in World War II when Volgograd was more famously known as Stalingrad. So you have this Russian Achilles heel, 300 kilometers from Ukraine. And it would it would be very difficult to defend. It would, it would be nothing for if, if NATO wanted to sweep into Russia and decisively knock them off the map, um, it could cripple them overnight. And we have a precedent of doing that. We have a precedent of coming up with an excuse to go to war against uh, a nation led by one of our ideological opponents, which Putin is, and steal their resources under the flag of democracy. Every, Putin knows this, and he's terrified of it. He has every reason. And so he needs some sort of buffer state. He does not want to be on the border of any kind of NATO country, right? Um, so he needs Ukraine to remain neutral in order to function as this buffer state between himself and NATO. Well, now, only until like uh, December, uh, Ukraine was threatening to join NATO. And they tried for a month to, uh, negotiating Ukrainian neutrality, and we would not budge on it. Now you have Ukraine reigniting the war with the secessionists, with Western-supplied weapons, and finally, Ukraine stands to win that war. If Russia did not intervene on behalf of these people who have been shelled for eight years, 13,000 people have been killed by the Ukrainian government. 13,000 in, in those regions. Yeah. And this is not something that's very talked about. No, of course not. He's the good guy, remember? <laughs> I don't know how many uh, Kosovars uh, were killed before we uh, intervened in what was then Yugoslavia, and, and I've lost count of how many other yeah, if, wars we've instigated of bombings. But I mean, 13, 15, 14, whatever the number is, and that's a that's a sizable number of an ethnic cultural minority. Yeah, many civilians. And the only crime was not wanting to go along with Zelensky's illegitimate government that persecuted them, right? And so now they're on the verge of... Funnily enough, that, that part sounds like something you'd want to defend in, in democracy. <laughs> uh, we hear a lot about ethnic minorities needing protection and having certain rights, quasi-autonomy being created, in, even in Britain and, uh, and Spain, but not in other places, evidently. Well, I'm with NATO. <laughs> <laughs> So is that is that kind of is that an explanation with regards to the timing as well, or, or do things just happen at some point because they happen at, at some the time? It's a very clear explanation for the timing. I think um, this is kind of my own analysis. So take it with a grain of salt. I'm not an expert, uh -huh. um, but the reason he had to invade. You sound pretty expert to me. I have to say, <laughs> I'm just living here. Um, 
the reason he had to invade now is because it was the most um, advantageous time to do so. So basically, you know, he is terrified of Ukraine becoming either a NATO country or a nuclear country. Because if either of those things occur, then Russia cannot invade Ukraine without uh, risking a World War III crisis scenario. Right? And so with Zelensky now being armed with the weapons he needs to crush the Donbass and uh, reintegrate them into Ukraine, uh, while simultaneously refusing to declare neutrality. Um, you are, Putin was um, very soon about to have an anti-Russian neighbor armed with Western weapons, potentially nukes, joining NATO. And then we have this vulnerability scenario that I described earlier. Putin cannot let that happen. With the bulk of grass. Yeah. He cannot have a hostile NATO country 300 kilometers from the Volga River. You can't allow it. So negotiations have failed this entire time. In fact, they're only becoming more aggressive. Um, if So military intervention is probably the only way he saw convincing Zelensky to remain neutral. And the most advantageous time to invade would be before the secessionists fell. Mm. He invaded like, I don't know how many days after the civil war resumed, but he did not waste time. He wanted to invade Ukraine while he still had the support of these strong Eastern allies. And before Zelensky could see it coming, the attack without warning. So, uh, yeah, and I I appreciate that. I mean, this this conflict has been, or the tension has been there since 2014. So both parties must have well, I suppose there's been quite a number of changes in Ukraine, so the various governments will have had different stances on this, and maybe it's a more recent phenomenon. But both countries must have had, or at least toyed with the uh, possibility that this could one day happen and, and being prepared for it. So is there is there any sense that they were completely vulnerable and defenseless? Is there vice versa? an indication that Russia has been sort of building up for this, expecting it to happen? Or is it is it really a question of circumstances became so tense that they had to react quickly? And, and maybe that's why it's become as messy as it. I don't know if it's messy, actually. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, I think it kind of is. And there's other reasons for that. Okay. Um, of course, Russia especially has been preparing for this inevitability. That's why a lot of these Russians are saying, no, thank God it finally happened. Right. We've been waiting for it. Uh, but I do think Russia has been trying to avoid it. And, and to sort of interrupt you, and they're not saying that to sort of bang the national pride chest. I mean, there must be an element of that. But uh, they, I mean, do people recognize this for the reasons that you outline? Or is it more sort of nationalist fervor, uh, singular uh, censured propaganda? So I'll say that the um, people who support the war tend to read Russian state media. Um, and the reasons provided by Russian state media are it's the liberation narrative. Um, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine have been oppressed and murdered for eight years. in What is effectively a genocide, those are their words. Um, 
Their government is controlled by Nazis, fascists, oligarchs who hate them. And this has been a long time coming. Finally, we're going to liberate these people. So that's kind of the. Uh, and when they say these people, do they mean all Ukrainians? No, uh, they, and they genuinely want a, a neutral country or do they just want a puppet state of Russia, do you think? Um, well, they want as many Ukrainians who are sympathetic to Russia to rejoin Russia. Um, this has been like a Putin perceives this as a tragedy, almost a crime committed against the Ukrainians. This is like a divorce where a, two children were separated from each other. Well, he might see it that way, but not all Ukrainians. I mean, I know plenty of Ukrainians who, who want nothing to do with them. No, not now, not anymore. The Russians do. They see it as war liberation. Um, as far as the Ukrainians go, I'm much less of an expert on their opinions. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned to me, I mean, we, we, we could talk, I want to go back to some of these strategic things um, afterwards, but let's just leave those for now. So we, we will just for the sake of our viewers, we are going to talk about, you know, more of the reasons. So there are some clearly identifiable strategic ones that, that you've outlined. There's obviously this historical legacy and a cultural one. Uh, what I think remains really blurry is to what extent uh, the Ukrainians themselves, and I'm talking about the ordinary citizens, opposition, and so on and so forth, um, whether they too believe that they've been uh, governed by, you know, some pretty reprehensible figures who are, as you say, raping the country. Um, a lot could be argued to be the case for Russia as well. Um, but but let's leave that for now and, and, and return to some of those, also the economic aspect of it and China's role, India's role and so on. So we, we're going to get to those, but I want to get your um, personal experience about the consequences of this and how it's impacting ordinary people. So two weeks ago, you told me people were walking around, living their lives as totally ordinary, happy that the the mandates or restrictions were lifted and then suddenly bang. And what has it meant for, for example, you expatriates? Tremendous levels of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the expats are fleeing in droves. Um, a lot of them afraid that they won't be able to go back to their native countries if they don't leave now. Um, I personally have been cut off from my bank account. Uh, this is the, the visa restrictions. All flights to the US are closed. I will have to go through a third party country by train or car and try to fly from there. I want to return to America. Um, and for the rest of the Russians, I mean, <laughs> I can say everyone's been drinking a lot more. <laughs> um, there, are, there are laws against, you know, public uh, alcohol consumption. The police are pretty strict here, but now it's a like people don't care. Um, they're drinking while they're walking their dogs and <laughs> nobody bothers to stop them. Um, we're worried about where these sanctions are going to go. You know, every day, I mean, I went from being fine here and then within a two day window, I don't have access to my money or a flight home. In two days, it went from zero to a hundred like that. Every single day is people are scrolling through the news. So this is you accessing your American account that's blocked. But you also mentioned a friend who has 
both an American and a Russian account, and he's able to he's able to transfer money out of Russia, but not the other way around, right? Well, no, it's um. So the way I've been surviving here is I can transfer money from my American account to his American account. Okay. Uh, but then he simply kind of withdraws money from his Russian account equal to you know what I gave him. Right. And then I but he's worried because most of his money is in America. Yeah. He cannot access that. So when the rubles run out in his local Russian accounts, he might be flying back with me. Like <laughs> they're totally choking us here. But I mean, so people are saying, you know, we we we're going to hit Putin and he won't know what hit him. And I mean, the guy, I don't know what he is or, or, or who he is. I mean, I've read biographies of him and so on and so forth, but I mean, he's certainly not completely stupid. I mean, he'll be well aware that he's going to be, I mean, they've been hit with sanctions numerous times, Russia. Um, they're practically sort of living quasi-permanently in, in sanctions. I mean, he must have known that these sanctions were going to strike, especially as things were progressing and have some sort of plan B. But what I'm wondering about is, which is obviously the purpose of the sanctions as well, is to pressurize the local population to the extent that they say, okay, enough is enough and, and topple him or whatever, turn against him. But what are people saying? Let's let's take those who are pro the, um, the activity, the Russian activity in Ukraine. Um, I mean, they must be feeling this as well. What, um, what, what, what's their response? Right. So they're getting angry at the West. These sanctions are only increasing the uh, pro-war resolve. Um, this actually confirms their biases about Western aggression. Right. But certainly, the West must know this doesn't actually impact the oligarchs at all. This doesn't hurt Putin. Uh, it only hurts these already poor Russians, you know. And uh, now they're suffering worse because of the actions of a man they couldn't have elected if they wanted to. So they're treating it like a punch in the nose, and it's 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 only making them more extreme. And do you think that will be true also for the ones who are, let's say, neutral or or anti or, or critical of Putin? Right. So as far as the ones that are critical, it's having the same but opposite effect on them, where they're also becoming more uh, motivated to resist the war. Uh, there's a protest on the 6th. There are protests at least once or twice a week here in Moscow. Oh, and, yeah, these people are beaten. I have a picture on my phone. My friend two nights ago, she uh, had her nose broken and her tooth chipped by a police officer. She was detained at the previous protest she went to, um, but they don't quit. So the more both of these parties suffer, the more division there is inside of Russia about this war. And I think that's what the West is counting on, that you turn the Russian people against each other. Yeah. But again, I mean, Putin must have known this. I mean, he knows there is opposition that, that are going to use this to strengthen that opposition as, as things get you know, more and more difficult for the ordinary citizen. Um, right now, the opposition is not a threat. Mm -hmm. uh, it is already normal in Russia to just arrest protesters. 
the first night of protests here in Moscow, over 600 people were arrested in one day. They just, they'll, they'll arrest you for walking too close to the protest by accident. <laughs> they just pull people off the streets. They don't care. Um, the people here have no weapons. You know, they don't pose a serious uh, threat to Putin, these, these protesters. So whatever, he just keeps crushing these protests. They won't achieve anything. Um, whereas they'll keep propagandizing the pro-war people, blaming the West for their suffering, you know. Um, and I think ultimately it'll only increase uh, the war fervor in the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, even in contemporary times, have always been, if not an excuse for, uh, or the very purpose of them has been to centralize power even more, increase surveillance, you know, clamp down on opposition because you create these sort of very singular narratives uh, that uh, makes you either for and against the good or the bad. And of course, it's yeah. never that diametrical. I see that even here. They're either consuming Western media, those who can speak English, or they're consuming Russian state media. Right. Neither side is nuanced, let me tell you. Neither of these outlets are nuanced in any way. It's, so. it, I mean, it's the same here, as you're probably aware. You know, you, if you watch the alternative, I would say you get more of a balance if you watch the alternative medias, because at least you have the discussion. Uh, and it's, you, you're having, uh, let's say, a consideration of why this might occur. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, could we entertain the notion that uh, Putin is doing the same as the conspiracy theorists, as they are called, um, did in relation to COVID and even this, this crisis in Ukraine, that it's just another excuse to create chaos, uh, more state encroachments, uh, massively expanded budgets, um, centralization, et cetera, et cetera, autocracy. I mean, sure, that's always going to be a factor. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's no one reason these things happen. Yeah. And certainly, even if Putin didn't plan this war for that reason, there's no reason he wouldn't take advantage of it. Mm. And what about the, the, the rest of the international community so i mean there's there is this um there is this relationship between russia and china but even during the communist era that was a very awkward one those were never happy bedfellows they never sat easily alongside one another and uh, they still don't seem to even though they're probably united in and one thing which may strengthen that somewhat uh, tender relationship, which is their antipathy towards uh, unipolar world and, and one driven by well, American hegemony, I suppose, and NATO mm -hmm. expansion. Is there anything, are, are people talking about that? Um, and, and how do they see that? Do they, do they perceive China as a threat or a friend? I know. Um, they don't seem to think much about them. Right. Honestly. Uh, but now the, I think that that's going to start entering the uh, common conversation because what these sanctions are achieving is they're pushing Russia into China's arms. Yeah. 
Um, if you don't want to buy Russian oil, fine. Your gas prices will go up and China will have exclusive access to it. The, the markets in the East are still massive. Yes, but he's so I mean, yes, we all understand that. But uh, so I started looking into some of the logistics and and infrastructure. And unless something has been happening under the radar, mm. um, the the infrastructure to channel substantial amounts directly to China is basically non-existent. Um, and that would take a decade to build and costs. I think the latest prognosis I saw was something like a trillion dollars. I don't know what that would be in rubles today. <laughs> but 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 um, but but the argument was that this is why obviously the Black Sea and, and, and so on is, is so important and why that particular corridor um, with the eastern part of Ukraine, which is where the southern part of the silk, the, you know, the, um, the Silk Road uh, transportation network is supposed to go. So I think part of it is to Duisburg. Uh, there is some into Poland, but a main channel sort of cuts through uh, Ukraine at exactly this kind of corridor. And could could that be what, what he's looking to obtain, that sort of... But that still leaves them exposed, I suppose, for the re with the rest of Ukraine in, in say, NATO's hands. Uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm going to give a definitive answer on that. Everybody is asking questions about what Putin's going to do next. Yeah. Um, it is it is it is certain that um, his communication with China has increased. Yeah, uh, the relationship is growing. Yeah, and, um, if it takes ten years to find a solution, they have ten years. Um, yeah, I mean, I I wrote an article. I think what is it now? Two months ago, maybe two and a half months ago, where I said I fully expect within the coming months that some sort there will be some sort of announcement. Um, of an alternative uh, currency or mix of currency or payment methods yeah. to trade, uh, especially resources, but trade generally between particularly Russia and China. Uh, but it would likely also involve Iran and various other countries. And India, I know, sits awkwardly in, in that one, but they seem to, yeah, they seem to be leaning both ways. Uh, but they... If anything, the latest thing that I sense is that they're more critical of the US and NATO and sort of leaning slightly more towards, uh, let's say, a sort of trade pact of the East. Yeah, it's going to be like this Eastern axis that's going to come out of this. And um, in terms of new, new currency, absolutely, they're going to do everything they can to uh, undermine the dollar, mm. which is the source of the United States power right now. Yeah. Putin, Putin talked about, I remember a speech very distinctly, and it, I can't remember whether it was 2015 or 16, but, you know, we were talking sort of five, six, whatever years back, maybe maybe a bit more, where he was saying the biggest, the biggest problem in the world was the dollar, and particularly how the dollar has become, had become politicized, and the Department of Justice was, was using it, you know, it's, it started with with tax and, and Swiss banks, and then it sort of expanded from there uh, in 2012. And he's, so he's talked publicly about this consistently for years, 
um, the Greek professor who who's become very he became very prominent during the whole Eurozone crisis. He's written a whole book about it, making the same arguments. Varoufakis. Yeah, um, as the Chinese economy grows, um, there's very little propping up the dollar right now. Mm. What, what is our dollar backed by? It's backed by the sort of OPEC guarantee, uh, have to accept USD to buy oil from these certain countries. Um, well, if we get our oil, if, if Russian oil becomes cheaper than those countries are, if the Chinese economy outcompetes the American economy, um, the dollar is going to lose value. And if that happens, what follows next is our military supremacy. Yeah, and, and that, absolutely. And in that same article, I just remember now, I mean, I, I was also saying that Russia, it seems like almost Russia has been sort of preparing for this eventual scenario. So, you know, they've paid back all the uh, foreign currency denominated debts. Uh, they've been hoarding gold. Um, uh, they've created all the, what you would call, uh, you know, the foundations for a stable currency. And I made the same argument that China was in the process of doing the same at the cost of growth. So this notion about, you know, continuous growth expansion and GDP expansion has now they've built up whatever they needed in terms of you know technological advancement development of the economy education infrastructure and so on and so forth and now they would do like france did prior to the introduction of the euro that they basically sacrificed many of the businesses and employment at the funeral pyre of a stable currency prior to you know locking it in um, with effectively the deutschmark and there seems this is my interpretation from what I've seen in terms of economics, what, what, what China has been doing, especially in the last year, year and a half, is precisely the same thing. Look at the clampdown on many of the businesses. Yes, a lot of that is political, but, um, but they are also exposed because they are so heavily leveraged. The private sector is enormously levered. So this could be a way of saying, well, if we are to be a substantial trading partner in this new um, regionalization and we want to be the dominant player in, in, in our part of the world, we have to have a currency that people believe in. And there's already antipathy towards China politically and militarily as it is, so to counterweigh that you have to at least present yourself as a viable um, trading partner with with a currency that people can can rely and trust on and and it it seems to me as if russia has been doing the same yeah um they, they can't enforce their their value uh the same way that the united states can mm. so they're kind of coming down on resiliency which they're very good at mm -hmm. and i think sanctions are only going to make it better yeah. they're forced yeah, that, sorry including my point they're forced to become self-reliant yeah and a lot of commentators have, have made this point uh, at nausea that you know the russians maybe there's been a change of course with uh, with the postmodern economy but uh, the, the russians have a history of being extraordinarily resilient and they've been through worse times than this and at the end of the day they have the resources um it's going to be very hard to go through a winter in Poland, Germany, 
and elsewhere um, at with 40 to 45 percent less energy. Yeah, this is um, a war of attrition. I think Russia can win. Russians are used to being poor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're used to being sanctioned. And if there's any unrest, Putin knows how to quell it. Um, what the wealthy nations in the West don't know how to do is live with rolling blackouts or brownouts. You know, um, Putin can turn off the lights by denying them oil. And then where are they going to get their power from? We'll see how long these sanctions last when Putin starts imposing his own. Mm. And whatever hell they try to inflict upon the Russian people, they'll survive. Uh, but, has, but things must also have changed. I mean, I appreciate you haven't been in Russia over the previous, let's say, decade, but some of your friends and contacts have. I mean, Russia must also have changed. Um, I mean, there's clearly, I mean, I have a lot of Russian friends, and they're, but they're all expats. Um, but there must have been a, a sizable development in terms of the middle classes who've got used to a different kind of lifestyle than what we've previously associated with a relatively poor working class one. That seems to be the case in the two major cities, Moscow right. and St. Petersburg. But I have been to the more sort of provincial cities as well. Uh -huh. Still looks like a, a Soviet nightmare in a lot of these places. Putin is guilty of um, investing in the infrastructure of these capital cities and everywhere else. Um, life for them doesn't seem to have changed very much. You're in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yes, this is where you're going to see the majority of protests, the majority of these Western sympathizers, the majority of people who want to get rid of Putin and have a more uh, Western lifestyle that they've gotten used to. Um, but that's a fraction of the country's population. Uh, so you have the same phenomena as most of the world is experiencing, which is the um, the, uh, the main cities have increased enormously in prosperity and the rest have sort of been largely left behind. You kind of feel, unless Russia continues in the same vein as, you know, having a strong autocrat in power and and thus it remains and never changes, that Russia itself could be on the verge of some sort of major, I don't know, developments uh, breaking away from this. I think so. Um, so what a lot of Russians appreciate that Westerners don't is how corrupt Western governments are. Mm. Uh, they're not on approach. So they have this interesting perspective where they're not trying to like mimic the West because it's just as bad. It's just a different version of corruption and tyranny, kind of. And so if Putin ever uh, were dethroned and assuming NATO didn't immediately start imposing their own agenda on Russia, the Russians are actually able, capable of sort of uh, pursuing their own destiny. It might be something totally new. They don't want to be like the West. But they don't want what they have now either. So it, it's could be the also. I mean, so one thing is people are turning to the old vodka, and uh, in this time, is there also? And I guess this is hard, but is there also um, a movement like like 
we are certainly witnessing here in abundance, which is, I, I mean, I would call it a spiritual kind of movement. There's a real uh, sort of, uh, I find it hard to, to explain, but there is, there, there's almost a religious movement of sort of um, understanding of codependency that governments are just abjectly failed, that all authorities have corrupted, uh, they mean no good, there's no checks and balances. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I absolutely fundamentally believe this myself, um, uh, which is hard for someone who studied politics, which of course, <laughs> you're you know, studying the intricacies and the genius of how to put together a political system and state, but they, they, it's a very, very profound and strong movement and people are finally learning here at least and I'm, I'm sort of I would love to find out if this is the case let's say in, 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 in Russia as well of um, a dismay and a, and a rejection of this idea that we need a state because otherwise we're going to end in violent anarchy and we don't know how to look after each other because it seems that it's the state who leaves us in perpetual wars and crisis endlessly sorry that was a long no that's yeah. okay um i don't think that exists here yet but i think they're ready for it right. right um like the youth in russia don't know what to think it's it's a very hopeless atmosphere um they don't have access to a lot of ideas you know i was, I was educating this uh group of college students i met here on sort of like the American principles of you know class, classical liberal, liberalism, gun ownership, the right to self-defense. Um, they there is no sort of intellectual, yeah, like arguments they've never heard before. Like you should own a gun so you can defend yourself. What? Never thought about that. Uh, <laughs> maybe Putin would be less hostile if his citizens were armed. No, I never thought about it that way. Um, so they are ripe for new ideas, the good ideas that come from the West. Um, because right now they're just getting their ideas from the same mainstream sources that uh, people do, and it's actually I see it having a toxic effect on the uh, the youth here, where they're getting their new ideas from Hollywood and the mainstream media. Mm. You know, in my these institutions that have poisoned American culture mm. decades, and um, so I'm I'm a little concerned, but they are prepared for something brand new. They want anything brand new. They do. The youth do, at least, yeah. Uh -huh. The young people here in Russia are ready for uh, new ideas, um, but they don't really know where to get them from. Right. I think there's a huge market for it because it's very difficult still for uh, the West and the East to, to communicate, um, to get a book translated into Russian or vice versa to get to get access to Russian media or for a Russian to get access to American media. It's still very hard. Um, so if we can tear down that that sort of cultural barricade, uh, we could see like a sweeping cultural renaissance here. Yeah, because there's been this um, discourse in academia um, and by academia, I would sort of extend that to the media, um, where you even have Russians commenting on themselves, saying, 
well, Russia is incapable of uh, existing and, uh, and functioning unless it has a strong leader. So we willingly, it's sort of, uh, do you, I don't know if people are familiar with Thomas Hobbes, but he was a you know, Renaissance political thinker, and he argued for the Leviathan, the autocratic state that is there to ensure uh, peace and, and control, which can then al allow economics and the arts and letters to flourish. But it is predicated on there being one authority figure who keeps everybody in control. And that I don't know if it's a myth. No, I don't think anybody knows because Russia has never had the chance of anything else. But that's certainly one that's been perpetrated all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, historically, it's been that way. Um, mm. Now, I just they don't know how to do anything else. Uh, the reason they don't really resist is because they just keep trading one autocrat for another. It's not an outrage to them <laughs> when these things happen. Mm. They don't know what it's like to fight back or protest. Um, but I talk to them and I'm like, oh, God, I wish so badly we could like protest in the streets like you Americans do and make change in our leadership like you Americans do. They want to. Um, America hadn't known anything other than monarchy before our revolution occurred. It's always scary the first time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let's not forget that there are certain protests that are encouraged uh, in these wonderful liberal democracies uh, and others that are clamped down. So you said your account has been closed, but Canadian truckers who have had the most absolutely oh, yeah. life enhancing experience in Ottawa. They are their accounts frozen by an executive order, but uh, you know, maybe things are not all that different. It's it's a bit of a mirage. What this has, one benefit of all this is it's exposing the hypocrisy of the West, you know? That it is. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, calling Putin uh, the next Hitler for invading Ukraine, but we spent the past 20 years invading countries we had nothing to do with. Yeah, I've lost count of. I think under Obama, somebody did a calculation. Obama threw more bombs than were dropped during the whole Second World War in his eight years in office. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, maybe just to sort of uh, finish off, um, and this is pure speculation, of course, on, on behalf of both of us, but what's going to be the outcome? Where does this end? And let's take what are the what are the possible scenarios, and then the uh, the uh, the more progressive one, a constructive one. How how could this be resolved in a way that everybody can live with? Okay, so we'll start with uh, how like practically how what are the outcomes of this thing? Um, that really depends on how the West plays this. If NATO gets involved, it's not an exaggeration to say that could start World War III. You'd have all the NATO nations teaming up on Russia. Russia would pull in China and God knows who. Uh, you'd have nuclear superpowers fighting again in Europe. That could be World War III. That's worst case scenario. And as NATO gets involved, boots on the ground. Most likely scenario, I think, is eventually uh, Zelensky has to capitulate. He can't win this war without NATO's help. Um, Putin annexes the Donbass and forces Zelensky to be a neutral state. And then it's going to be really tense for a really long time. 
Another outcome is this is just maybe Putin leaves or not, but this is just some long drawn out proxy war that is waged ad infinitum. Um, yeah, and Ukraine turns into a failed state uh, where everybody is like Lebanon, Syria has become, and where everybody fights their wars and drains the country. Yeah, it's just going to be a permanent war zone um, where I think like already Ukrainians and Russians are fleeing Ukraine. It could just be some perpetual you know, massive battlefield forever. Um, how we could resolve this peacefully. I think the only way out of this now is to uh, guarantee the neutrality of Ukraine. Um, I don't think Ukrainians can win, not without risking World War III by pulling in NATO. Um, Putin's not going to be satisfied until they declare neutrality, because if they don't, it's going to be a threat to Russia. Um, I kind of hate to say it, but people are dying in a hopeless war that could escalate into an even greater war. Give Putin what he wants. Let you Do you think he wants more? Because so everybody I speak to who watches mainstream media, it, you know, they think he's a singular psychopath. He's lost his mind and he's, he's now going for world conquest. And I think you have to be, I'm sorry to put it this way, but you have to be completely moronic to think that that's, I mean, he's never, he's never portrayed any ambitions in that regard. And he, know, he knows his own limitations, I think. He's a judifizer. He, they're defenders. They're not attackers. But that's not to say that that he's probably, um, let's say, put it politely, ambitious about his near region. But uh, would he, would he stop at that, or would he continue interference with by uh, other factors uh, subsequent to this? I mean, does, does he? Would he feel basically what I'm trying to say? Would he feel emboldened if he comes away, at least being able to present himself victorious to this, and then say, "Okay, next up is the Baltic republics: Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia." And why stop there? We've always had our eyes on Finland, and we supply 100% of their energy. And Poland has also been closely aligned ally. I think uh, he's not stupid enough to lay his hands on a NATO country. And I think after this war, a lot more European nations are going to become NATO countries. Um, and NATO is going to have a motivation to do that. They're kind of relaxing their standards just to kind of deter Russian aggression. Um, if Putin takes Ukraine, yeah, over a long enough period of time, I actually don't see why he wouldn't uh, take what he can get away with. As long as he feels threatened by the West, He's going to continue to try and bolster his uh, his nation's own power to deter Western aggression. Yeah. You can't be you can't be an easy target if uh, the West has you in their sights. Um, I think it'll, it'll continue to sort of tactically and um, systematically collect any of these nations that he can, one way or another. I think he'll try to avoid these invasions. <laughs> there are other ways you can annex countries. You can rig elections and invite, I don't know. Um, I don't think it'll be the end of his ambitions. But I, I, I mean, I, I think there's also another recognition here. I think there are two things at play. There's a very prominent, uh, what you call sort of geostrategic um, uh, international relations advisor. And he was talking about 
again, back to 2015, that we would end up in a world of uh, almost very clearly demarcated uh, geostrategic spheres that would be mutually recognized. And one would be China-Russia in a sort of pact that would continuously be awkward, like we've talked about, but they would basically be granted the whole of Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera, and eventually even Taiwan. Um, but you have to sort of present a facade of opposing it, which is why NATO will never send in any forces. They will send arms, militias, whatever, like they, uh, like has been done in, in the Middle East, but uh, never a sort of full-blown escalation. Um, so, 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 so that's one thing. So you get a sort of almost tripolar uh, world. So a little bit akin to the Cold World War. It's tense, but you're sort of left um, to your own devices, more or less. And then occasionally something flares up a little bit, but uh, the mutually assured destruction and so on. But also because so many things are falling apart. You know, so many states I think we're now recognizing are at their apogee and I think the majority of people recognize that something very fundamental is about to come in terms of profound changes in countries uh, in relation to you know the people and their governments so it's sort of we've got enough to deal with in our own backyard um, in order to to keep us at bay from interfering elsewhere, because we'll be so preoccupied with what's happening domestically. I think China will have plenty to look at. I think the European Union is going to, if not collapse, then largely disintegrate over the coming years. Many countries will leave. Um, the US, I think, is going to go through a massive, change over the coming two years. Massive. I, don't, I think people underestimate to what extent. Exciting times. Yeah, it certainly is. Okay, well, thank you very much, Thomas. Um, in a sort of strange, perverse way, I hope you stay so you can tell us more about What's yeah, happening? I, I was going to suggest sending you money or a credit card that you can live off, but you obviously won't be able to use it. Just just tell us again how what, what the charges are if you use a Visa card. Oh, yeah. So right now there's like one bank you can access uh, through Visa, supposedly. And uh, a friend here um, withdrew $60. It cost him $20 <laughs> to withdraw 60 33% charge. <laughs> wow, this is not going to be pretty, is it? No, absolutely not. Well, I wish you, I wish you luck. I look forward to following up with you privately and hopefully in this kind of forum as well. Yeah, likewise, my friend. There'll be more to talk about, I'm sure. Plenty. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs>